Trust in that today. We pray that that truth would inspire joy in our lives no matter where we are. In your name we pray. Amen. Grab a seat. Uh, one of the funny things for me as the service starts is I realize all the things I forget as I try to communicate between Gary and Carrie and myself and Christine. So when there are glitches here in announcements or when the offering happens at the wrong time, this is the guilty party, just so th- these guys are doing a great job. But two of the announcements that just came to my mind that I wanted to announce and I didn't tell Carrie. Number one is uh, sp- the spiritual formation retreat number two is coming up in January. I just want to put that out there because I know during the Christmas rush there's a lot going on. January 17th and 18th, the second retreat's there. If you're interested in coming to that, be sure and let Christine know at the office. And tonight the ghouls are here, but next Sunday night we will do a Christmas carol sing at 7. Uh, so that's all we'll do. Uh, there's no preaching that night because I'm, I'm off by Sunday night, right? But if you want to come and just sing Christmas carols for an hour with us Sunday night, next Sunday night, the 22nd, we'll do that. Great. Uh, we're moving through Advent. We're at the third week, the candle of joy. And I hope you're enjoying Zechariah's dreams, right? They're a bit strange. Uh, I've said over and over, are a series of eight dreams in the first six chapters of Zechariah, and they, they kind of work their way into the middle and back out. Dream one and dream eight match up. Dream two and seven, three and six, and then the, the heart of it is right in the middle, dream four and five. Well, today uh, we're looking at the question, uh, or, or at dream three and dream six, um, we, we started initially looking at 1 and 8, and that was this idea that uh, God will come, He will restore, but the question is, when? When is it going to get better? We know He's coming, we know He's promised that, but when? And we, we lit the candle of hope to remember that that's one of the things we need to do in this world is to hope for His return. And last week we looked at the second dream and the seventh dream that God is planning to overflow the world with us as artisans of peace, this image of peace that we create things that are so compelling that that people fall in love with the God behind them and are drawn to that instead of evil. Well, today we come to dream three and six, and and we're actually going to read the text in three different sections. We're going to start in chapter two, which is the third dream, verses one to five. Then we're going to go to the sixth dream in chapter 5. I'll give you instructions as we go, verses 1 to 4. And then we're going to come back and read a little section in chapter 2, 6 to 13, which is kind of this poetic message that Zechariah gives to set up the last two dreams of next week. But there's a lot more into it than just a setup. But we'll start with Zechariah, chapter 2. If you don't know where Zechariah is, go to the very end of the Old Testament and come back two books. Malachi and Zechariah is right before that. Chapter 2, 1 to 5, here is the third dream, the third vision. Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I asked, where are you going? And he answered me, to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and and how long it is. And then the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said, run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Now in this text, in dream three, we see Jerusalem is a city without walls. That's the kind of focus. We're moving deeper toward these central uh, dreams in four and five. But the first one today is something that's it's on the minds of every single person. Remember, they've come home from Babylon. They've been there for 70 years and they've come back. And Jerusalem is in a shambles. The walls are down. The, the houses are destroyed. You know, you can see kind of post-war uh, 
places today where, where the whole thing is just destructive. It's, it's gone. And so they've come back after 70 years in captivity. They've come to Jerusalem. They've had this message that things are going to be restored. And it, and, and it just has to be rebuilt. And, and the thing the, the dream says is it, it will be rebuilt, but it's going to be different than the people expect. You see, the rebuilding is coming. We saw that in the first dream. Back in chapter 1, verse 16, if you look back, flip back a page, or maybe the same page for you. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. It's going to be rebuilt, he says. So it only makes sense when you see in this chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, what's going on. This is the logical step to take. If the, the city is going to be rebuilt, somebody needs to go measure. How big is it going to be? Where are we going to put the walls? The man has a measuring line, and, and Zechariah says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm going to measure Jerusalem. It's the first step. It's marking out the dimensions. How many of you have ever built a house or had a contractor build a house for you? Raise your hand. Some people have done that, right? How many of you let the contractor go without any kind of blueprints? None of, the, it's a logical first step that if you're going to build something, you've got a plan. You know how big it's going to be. You know where it's going to sit. But you get to verse 4 in this dream. And, and the angel says, there's no walls here. Tell that guy going to measure the walls, there's no walls in Jerusalem because there's so many men, women too, this is a cultural thing, so many people in the city and so much livestock that you can't, that it, 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 it's so expansive, you can't put walls around it. Now, there's a, something you should realize here. There's an idea here that when this new Jerusalem finally does get completely built, that it will be the whole earth. You cannot confine it. Now, that, we don't get that until Revelation 21, 22. But that's the idea being hinted at here. And there's going to be no walls, but there's going to be something better than walls. Did you notice that? Verse 5, the Lord says, And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, and I will be its glory within. Now, these are very specific Hebrew words for wall of fire and glory. I want you to hold that in the back of your head because we're going to come back to that. But first, I want you to think about what the walls are for. What do walls do? They protect, right? They keep the, the enemy out. And with walls gone, we feel vulnerable. And God says, there's not going to be any walls, but I myself will be the wall of fire around them. What he's saying is, your structures aren't going to protect you, but I will. Now, I'm going to be a little transparent here and show you something that I, I don't know if I should show you. Reed, you got that picture of... Here's the picture. I'm sure. I'm sure. This is... This is okay. I know you guys think that the guy in the middle is some important celebrity with two bodyguards, right? <laughs> this is me in grade four or five-ish. And my two older brothers, the guy on the left, the blonde hair guy, is Beth's dad. Um, she's a lot cheerier than him, don't you think? I, I'm going to call my brothers and say, what is the scoop with you guys? I'm the happiest kid in the world, and you guys are like somber. Anyway, I'm showing you this because in that year of my life, should we take it down now? <laughs> my, my wife never would have let me out of the house with brown and blue, ever, right? Okay, you can take that down. In that year of my life, as I was riding on the school bus back and forth to school, there was a guy named Sammy Cope who was a bully. And Sammy Cope was in high school, and uh, he was your, 
I, I, I'm sure God loved Sammy Cope, uh, but he was your quintessential hillbilly redneck of the mountains, and he had a class ring, you know, the, the big high school class rings, and he would turn it upside down and sit behind me on the bus and pat me on the head. <laughs> and it drove me nuts. He did it day after day after day. He, he bullied me is what he did. And, and one day I had had enough, and so when he stopped and turned around to talk to his other friends, I took my grade four spelling book out of my backpack, and I turned around while he was talking, and I cracked him across the head as hard as I could do it. And I, I mean, I had a little girth there, you know. I had some, <laughs> I had some oomph. And then I cowered in my seat with the book over my head because I knew he was coming back after me, right? I had had enough, and I was taking action. What I didn't realize while I was hiding under the seat, because he never hit me, what I didn't realize was that sitting in the seat beside me was Mark Smith, who was the star running back on the football team who had watched Sammy bully me for weeks and weeks and weeks and been frustrated about it, but had never done anything. But this was enough. When he saw that I hit him and he knew that Sammy was going to take it out on me, Mark Smith stood up and he punched him right in the collarbone, broke his collarbone. Yeah, it was a big deal. It's a big deal, let me tell you. It's a moment cemented in my memory. And, and after that day, I mean, I wasn't sure what was going to happen after that day. I thought Sammy was probably going to kill me. At some point, but Mark, the next day, now this is, I'm, you saw how cool I was, right? <laughs> I, was, I was pretty, yeah, I was up there. I was the envy of all the people in school. <laughs> but Mark, the high school running back, said to me when I got on the bus the next day, why don't you sit with me on the bus from now on? And I, being, being a grade four student with the mind that I had, thought that's a pretty good idea. And you know what Mark was? Mark was the wall of fire around me. All of a sudden, I didn't have to depend on my little spelling book to protect me. I had a person, a person with power to protect me. And God says, when Jerusalem gets rebuilt, there won't be walls, but you won't be vulnerable. I'll be the wall of fire around you, and I'll be the glory within you. See, a powerful person is better. Now, we're still going to come back to that idea of wall of fire and glory in a minute, but I want to skip over to dream number six in chapter five. We'll read the first four verses. I looked again, that's his dream six, and there before me was a flying scroll. Of course there was, right? And he asked me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll 30 feet long and 15 feet wide, this huge scroll. And he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land, for according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished, and according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out, and it will enter the house of the thief, and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, it will remain in his house and destroy it, both its timbers and its stones. So, so dream six is about a purifying scroll. Once again, another weird dream, 30 feet long, 15 feet wide, a scroll flying through the air, riding on both sides. It enters into the houses of those who are performing evil and makes sure that evil is finished. The idea here is that this scroll, this word coming from God, is purging the evil from the land. And it's addressing a false assumption that we have that walls keep evil out. Right? We all fall victim to thinking that evil is out there. It's those people 
who do those things. And all we need to do is stay away from those people. All we need to do is keep our loved ones safe from those people. So we build walls, sometimes physical, sometimes emotional, sometimes social, to keep those people out. Walls of anger, sometimes hatred, walls of looking down on other people. It's that other political party's fault. It's, it's the homeless and the drug addicts. That's their fault. It's that person who talks about me behind my back. But that's a very naive approach because evil isn't out there. We've got to realize this. Evil's not those people. It's closer to home. And that's the problem. When the scroll flies around and when it flies through the whole land, because evil isn't walled out. There's a, there's a Psalm, Psalm 55, and the psalmist says, Confuse the wicked, O Lord, confound their speech, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they prowl about on its walls. Malice and abuse are within it. See, the psalmist is saying, evil's not out there. You can't wall it out. When we only see it out there, we attempt to deal with it in ways usually that only amplify the evil. As we build walls to keep those people out there, we elevate ourselves above them. We look down in condescension. And we're just perpetrating the same evil (coughs) inside the walls. That's why we see that when the scroll comes to do its job, the word actually enters in to the houses. In verse 4 it says, it will enter the house. And this is illustrating that to deal with the evil, you have to work from the inside out. And that God is going to do this. He's dealing with the evil in the situation. You know, last week we talked about, you remember that great dream when two women with ostrich feathers, is it ostrich feathers? Yes. Flew the basket of evil all the way to Babylonia, right? This purging of evil. The same idea is happening here. But what's happening is the the word, the truth from God is going into the house and dealing with the evil. His word will destroy it, both its timbers and its stones. Once again, that first candle, this is a message of hope. The world is not always going to be like it is. Things are going to be purged. And a new Jerusalem will come, one where evil is eliminated and destroyed, where the norm for existence becomes that second candle of peace. And that kind of hope For peace inspires joy, which takes us back to chapter 2, where we see a poem from Zechariah. Now, most of your Bibles don't indent it this way. Only a few do. But but the Hebrew in Zechariah 2, 6 to 13, is poetic. It should be written. You know how most of your Psalms have the indentions and all those things? You can tell it's a poem. That's the way this should be written, because it's poetic language. And it's preparing the way for dream 4 and 5, which we'll get into next week. But it also is more than just preparation. It's reminding the people of something very powerful in a poetic way. Zechariah draws images from the past to paint a picture of the future. Now let's just read verses 6 to 13 of chapter 2. Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, O Zion, escape, you who live in the daughter of Babylon. For this is what the Lord Almighty says. After he has honored me and has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. After that, I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. And then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. 
Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Now, there, there's several things to note here. And first, you, you've got to remember the context. These people have been slaves in Babylon for 70 years. And they've, they've finally come back home. And, and when you hear that, when you realize what it would be like, I mean, the ghouls have been gone, what, two and a half years? Two, how long? Two and a half years. It feels like a long time. Doesn't it feel like a long time since we've seen those faces? Right? The boys have kind of grown up a little bit during that time. Seventy years is a long time to be out of your homeland, to be enslaved. And they finally come home, and then Zechariah gives them this poem. And what you hear in the poem are echoes of the Exodus. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 2 says, I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. And then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Back in Exodus 12, 36, as the people are coming out of Egypt. Remember that? The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. See, Zechariah is calling up an image from the past to help them remember. Remember when the slaves plundered the Egyptians, that's going to happen again. And in, in verse 4, we, remember that wall of fire? I will be a wall of fire about them. In Exodus 14, 19 to 20, then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front of them and stood behind them coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side so that neither went near the other all night long. There's this pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. And when they're pinned up against uh, you know, the water before they cross over, the, that becomes this wall of fire bringing darkness to one side and light to another the whole night. It's an image from the Exodus. And, and he says, I'll be the wall of fire about them in our text. And he says, and I'll be the glory within them. The, the Hebrew word is kavod. It's, it's like a heaviness or the presence of God. He says, I'll be with them. And, and, and in verse 10 of the text, he says, for I am coming and I will live with you, right? I'm going to be with you. And if you go back to the Exodus, as they get into the desert, what do they do? They build this tabernacle. And in Exodus 25, 8, it says, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. It, these are all echoes from their history when the slaves were set free and brought to the promised land. The lead up to verse 9 is verse 8 of our text. For this is what the Lord Almighty says, after he has honored me and sent me against the nations that have plundered you. For whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. And then if you go into Deuteronomy 32, Moses is telling the people their history. And he says in Deuteronomy 32, 10, in a desert land he found him, Israel, in a barren and howling waste, and he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. The words that Zechariah is using poetically all come from that story of the Exodus. He's purposely calling up these images to remind them that they were slaves before, and they were brought into the promised land, and they've been slaves again, but God will set them free. Now, we have a great example of this very same thing happening. I grew up in the United States, and, and a big part of our history was the civil rights movement. And Martin Luther King Jr. gave a bunch of speeches, and he would use biblical imagery. There's about a minute clip. Reed, if you can show that speech. This, this was the night before he died. Oh. 
Got some volume. We've got some difficult days ahead. Can you start it over? But it really doesn't matter with me now. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Well, I don't know what will happen good. now. That's good. He did that exact same thing. He's talking about Moses going up to the mountain and being allowed to see over into the promised land. And, and he's, the images of... It's a powerful image that people in slavery and captive, people who've been put down and put down, one day will be set free and brought into a place of peace. Right? That, that's what Zechariah is doing with the people as they come back from Babylon. He's telling this, this poetic rendering to say, look guys, it's happened before, it'll happen again, and it's vitally important that we realize it's going to happen again. That we live in a world that's dark and difficult and broken. And yet there is a promised land that we hope for. A, a land of peace. And, and the resting in that brings us this idea of joy. It's a message about the God who's coming in verse 10 and 11 of chapter 2. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming. I will live among you, declares the Lord. Advent, the God who's coming, the God who came 2,000 years ago in a way we would never expect, to a place we would never expect, to live and die like we would never expect to be God with us. And, and if you can just begin to grasp a little bit of that, that image that the people who are enslaved have been set free because God came to be with us, the only response to that is stillness and awe. And that's what you see in verse 13. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. You know, there, sometimes when we have a lot to say, we don't grasp the power of the moment. It's almost like we know something good's going on, but we've got to fill it up with words. You remember Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? There's, there's Jesus and Moses and Elijah, and Peter just can't help but say, we've got to do something. And the voice says, this is my son. Listen to him. Basically, Peter, shut up. It's not your time to talk now. There are times when you just have to be quiet. In the end of Job, chapter 40, just before the Lord speaks to Job the last time, Job says, I put my hand over my mouth because I just can't speak. 
And that's what you see at the end of this poem. Before we go into next week's dreams, the, the whole earth is called to be still because God is on the move. Ironic, isn't it? I'm standing here looking for words to describe to you how sometimes when we really get it, words get in the way. That's why when we really get it, when we really get Advent, Christmas, that God has roused himself from his dwelling and has become flesh, sometimes the best thing we can do is walk over here and light a candle. Right? The candle of joy. Just to realize there's something bigger going on. See, these dreams may seem a, way, a long way from an emphasis on joy, but that's not true. The ideas that they're communicating become this foundation for a joy that cannot be shaken. A joy that's, that gives us hope, you know, that first week gives us the hope for the destruction of evil, that the word of God will eventually enter the house of evil all over the land and destroy it right down to every timber and stone. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine no more hurting one another, no more children abused or abandoned, no more addiction, no more cancer, no more mental illness, no more war, suffering, famine, volcanoes, tsunamis, no more racism, hatred, no more mass shootings. Can you imagine that world? Revelation 21, I told you we'd get, we always get there. Every sermon I have, I think, goes there. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. Where have we read that? Oh, in Zechariah. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I had a friend that used to say, if that don't start your fire, your wood's wet. If you don't get excited about that, and maybe excitement to the point of being speechless even. That, that, that's, that's what we're hoping for. That's the peace that's coming. That's, what, that's the foundation for the joy we live with. Joy that overruns walls. You can't contain it. Why would we ever put a, a wall around this new Jerusalem? Because you can't contain what's going on in there. This impact is going to fill the whole world. In, in the message, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of, of um, the book of John, Jesus says, he's speaking of struggle and joy, and this is what he says in uh, John 16 in that paraphrase. When a woman gives birth, she has a hard time, but there's no getting around it. But when the baby is born, there is joy in the birth. This new life in the world wipes out the memory of the pain. The sadness you have right now is similar to that pain, he says, but the coming joy is also similar when I see you again, you'll be full of joy. And it will be a joy that no one can rob for you. You'll no longer be so full of questions. This is what I want you to do. Ask the Father for whatever is in keeping with the things I've revealed to you. Ask in my name according to my will, and he'll most certainly give it to you. And your joy will be a river overflowing its banks. That's that image. When you get what we're hoping for and the peace that will come, the joy follows just naturally after that. And it's not joy in how good we are, how effective we are, but in the fact that Advent reminds us that God comes to us as we are broken and needy. And He is the God who is present and protector. He looks at your life as you keep trying to build walls around it to keep yourself safe. And he says, you know what? You don't need those walls. You don't need that because I myself will be a wall of fire around you and I will be the glory within. Zechariah 2.10, I am coming and I will live among you. It reminds me of Matthew 1.23. The virgin shall be with child and will give birth to a son 
And they will call him Emmanuel, which means, that's your cue. Emmanuel means God with us. That's the whole story. God sets people free and he comes to be with them. And that, when you grasp it, inspires joy. A joy that can, can endure difficulty. And when, when you don't have words to say, and yet there's this joy underneath you that's, that's built because there's a glory inside and there's a wall of fire around you. And when we get it, when we really get it, stillness and awe sometimes is the only proper response. Let's pray. God, we live in a world so far from what we want it to be. There is so much pain and suffering everywhere we look. I'm so thankful for Jake's prayer because he reminded us of the beauty of your creation and things that we can take joy in. So thankful to see Jenna lighting the candle and this new baby coming. We're so excited for these things that are happening. But God, the, the world is still very dark. And, and in the midst of this, remind us that you have set us free from slavery. That you have come to be with us. And that one day you will come fully and, and your word will, will pu purify all of creation from evil. You will make all things new. And in that hope for your coming peace, cultivate in us a joy that flows out of us and into others in such a way that would draw them to know how beautiful and, power and powerful and transformative you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I love how Carrie opened talking about people that have joy right up here and people that don't feel it at all. Because some of you, Christmas, it's just everything's great right now. And I'm so happy. That's awesome. I love that. Some of you feel like you've been in captivity for 70 years and you're walking back and your whole place has been destroyed. But to both of you, whether you're here or whether you're here, this is what the Lord says. I myself will be a wall of fire around you and I will be your glory within and my prayer for all of you, whether you're here on the mountaintop or down in the valley, is that the joy that comes out of Christmas would not be about your circumstances, but be about the fact that God came to us and is doing something way bigger than we can ever ask or imagine. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen.